0: Hello and welcome to Foresight, I'm Greg Williams. A recurring feature of human civilization has been mobility, the constant search for resources and stability. Throughout history, seismic events, wars and genocides, revolutions and plagues have acted to cause movement across the globe. The map of humanity isn't settled, not now, not ever. And we're entering a new age of mass migration. So argues Paracana the author of Move, The Forces Uprooting Us, who I'm speaking to in this episode. As climate change tips towards full-blown crisis, economies collapse, governments destabilise and technology automates some types of jobs, we're entering a new age of mass migration, one that will scatter both the dispossessed and the well-off. Which areas will people abandon and where will they resettle? Which countries will accept or reject them? As today's world population which includes 4 billion restless youth. Votes with their feet. What map of human geography will emerge? Movies are really fascinating. Look at the deep trends, shaping the most likely scenarios for the future. So I'm delighted to be in conversation with Parag today. Parag, welcome.
1: Hi, Greg. So nice to join you. Thank you so much
0: for joining us, Parag. I'm really excited to talk about your book. Um, So the central thesis is that we're entering a new era of mass migration. Um, Let's park the nature of that just for the time being and try and understand the underlying causes. What do you think the forces are that are really driving this?
1: Well, that's an excellent place to start. And after all, in fact, I'm glad you used the phrase new age, because it has to be made clear that mass migration, migration in general, mobility is part of what our human story is. In fact, to move genuinely is human and if you go back 100,000 years from the time that we began our migrations out of Africa and colonizing the continents we have been migrants we have been nomadic for the better part of human history we have been nomadic peoples and the drivers have been forces like climate of course which is really the original determinant of where we can sort of settle where we can withstand the elements or where the climate is propitious where agriculture of course can thrive and now we've also had over the millennia forces like politics, wars, genocides, expulsions, economic issues, you know, cr- uh, economic crises, of course. And now we also have technological automation, people being having their factories closed down and being forced to, you know, abandon where they've called home and relocate to other places, or remote work, of course, which gives you the choice voluntarily to go and live wherever you want. Um, and then, of course, agricultural factors like droughts and, uh, you know, um, and and again, climate change has resurfaced really as a major force yet again in migration. But really, when we think about migration, we really think about our immediate 20th century history. And actually, for all of the political crises of the 20th century, especially, of course, World War I, World War II, uh, the Holocaust, expulsions, and so forth, the largest categories of migration in the 20th century were economic in nature. And it was, uh, for example, think about the post-war decades where Turks and other populations came to uh, work in Europe, uh, Latin Americans and Asians moving to North America. So of the hundreds of millions of migrants of the 20th century, the majority were actually voluntary economic migrants, not those that were politically expelled peoples. And we need to remember that, that it's part of our story in terms of every individual being an agent in search of a better quality of life and better livelihood, even if that means leaving their home country, which does, in fact, and maybe this is going too far afield at this point, but it does really undermine the notion that our primary identity is that tribal and nationalistic. In fact, we are out for ourselves and we will do and go wherever we need to go to survive. Yeah, loads to unpack there. And
0: thanks for such a you know, great thesis of, of, about the, what the book is covering. Um, is it, I guess, a couple of things, and I really want to get into climate and I'd love to get into sort of like nationalism and, and, and economic cycles uh, in a little bit. But I, I'm interested, you, you know, you've made the point, and it's a great one, that human beings, you know, have migrated for thousands and th- hundreds of thousands of years, basically since we've, you know, we've existed um, in this form are we seeing something different now is this is this is this different from before in terms of scale or in terms
1: of the nature of it In terms of scale, for sure, because quite frankly, the human population is much larger, right? We've spent the 20th century quadrupling the size of the world population from 2 billion to 8 billion people. So by definition, almost when we speak of mass migrations, the total volume is going to be higher. In fact, what I've noticed is that every century, the decimal place moves to the right. We've gone from centuries where there were just millions of migrants to tens of millions to hundreds of millions. And in this century, Greg, we will surely have more than a billion people leaving their home and migrating and climate will probably be the single largest driver of that but the other forces are also at play and don't think of that as just some kind of idle speculation and extrapolation if you look at the IPCC reports and uh, you know the the forecasts around the so-called climate niche the optimal latitudes for human habitation the reports suggest that for every 1 degree temperature rise 1 billion people are displaced from that climate niche and from the uh, habitats that, they, that, that have been familiar to them, where we have settled. So again, climate alone could easily account for more than 1 billion, if not 2 billion or more, migrants in this century, leaving aside all of the other forces as well. That's quite a staggering thought. That's, you know, what nearly, you know,
0: one, one person out of every seven across the globe uh, being impacted uh, and, and potentially, you know, migrating uh, in the coming years. Um, clearly, it's, you know, it's, it's become a cliche to talk about COVID accelerating trends, but clearly it sped up many of the sort of significant trends that have been driving the global economy. Um, how do you think COVID has impacted movements around the world? What have you seen?
1: Well, for one thing, it temporarily suspended that pattern of really robust and accelerating migration. But again, the trend line was so was was sloping so far upward that we can't view COVID as anything more than a temporary aberration. Again, given the fact that political instability, climate change, uh, economic crises, demographic imbalances between old and young, all of those, again, those push and pull factors are in hyperdrive right now. So the notion that this... You know, temporary, albeit tragic, of course, pandemic would suddenly reverse all of those trends is obviously preposterous. So we have to, you know, steady ourselves, ready ourselves for the continuation and expansion of migration for all of those reasons. Of course, again, going back to the notion of remote work, sure, for a certain, um, you know, cast of people. Um, You know, the, the voluntary nature of migration during the pandemic seems like a great opportunity. And we've even heard people speak about the death of the city, which is obviously wildly overstated. It's as if they're equating the fact that a number of people have left New York or Los Angeles for the death of all cities. The truth is that cities are always competing with each other for talent, and therefore one city's loss is actually another's gain. So when New York loses people, but Austin, Texas gains them, or Toronto, Canada gains them, or Berlin gains them, it's not the death of the city. It's one city gaining at another's expense. And it was ever thus. And in fact, that will most certainly be the case even more given the global demographic plateau that we have simultaneously uh, arrived at. You know, the world population is 8 billion people, but it's probably not even going to reach 9 billion people given the baby bust that has taken place. And there have been two subsequent baby busts. After the financial crisis of 2008, fertility crashed in the Western world. And with COVID, that crash, that, that second baby bust, is, is uh, substantially more severe than what we experienced a decade ago. Uh, So much so that you can now safely predict, I think, that Generation Alpha, who are today's babies, um, are, are actually gonna be a smaller generation in size than Generation Z. And that is a staggering, staggering fact to grapple with. right? We've really reached what I call peak humanity in the book. And therefore, in a way, the question of our population is not one of the number, because the number is no longer something so daunting, like the Malthusian scenarios had predicted of you know a world of 15, 16 billion people. Actually, we may not even reach 9 billion people. We're practically there already. And so it becomes a question of distribution. And this matters in the context of your question about the pandemic because in the post-pandemic world, if people can, those who have the means, those who have the skills, those who who work in those uh, appropriate sectors of the economy, can choose to be anywhere, then where they go will determine the winners and losers because you cannot take for granted that your country is automatically going to produce a sufficient number of people to sustain your economy. So one country's or one city's loss literally becomes another's gain and That's why I focus so much on the all-out war for young talent in this world today, especially after the pandemic.
0: So you mentioned earlier, you know, borders being locked down, international travel suspended, uh, you know, being this kind of almost black swan event. Does he, do you think this now gives us time to kind of reset a little bit along you know, to thinking about mechanisms around travel ident- identity documents passports um, creating a more a, a less you know sorry a more friction free
1: uh, ability for people sort of to, to move around the globe Exactly right. I'm so glad you brought this up because indeed, if the pandemic was a disruption, then you can also have a discontinuity in how we manage migration in the aftermath of the pandemic. So we're, we, I believe that we are taking this time and it's not just these two years that we've been locked down, but the, the subsequent period of readjustment um, to use the digital realities of managing um, COVID certification and applying that to migration more broadly. Because now, rather than just a stamp in a floppy paper passport everyone does have to have some kind of a qr code for their vaccine certification so why not also have or why not also digitize those other data points which in any case are somewhere in the public domain such as your travel history and itineraries your criminal records your financial statements your educational uh, certifications and other kinds of things and put those on a secure blockchain and share that data as to your identity that's verified as needed with the destination or host country so you can have rapid processing and approval for your visa application. And that's something that's eminently doable yesterday, as you know, Greg. And now that we have gotten accustomed to the fact that we have to share this QR code for our vaccine, um, you know, immunity, the same thing can be done for these other uh, realities. And I'm seeing this firsthand because, you know, I see students who graduate from universities in uh, in Singapore or heading to universities in the UK, and they have historically, especially if they're also going to the United States, had to go to the embassy or consulate or high commission to prostrate in front of bulletproof glass, to provide lots of paperwork and make sure that they've crossed all their T's and dotted their I's and pay money with, you know, paper checks and, you know, these kinds of things. All of that has already been completely superseded, Greg, right now. It never had to be the case. It was inertia. Inertia is doing things because that's the way you've done them, not because it's the right thing to do. And now, all of a sudden, the British High Commission and others say, you know what, scan here this code, upload these documents, click, you're approved, print out your visa, get on the plane. That's how we should have been doing it all along the last 10, 15 years. And that is how we'll be doing it tomorrow. And I think that's going to be a wonderful thing for enabling more frictionless mobility. But most of all, think about all the people who don't come from countries with a high, strong degree of passport access. We can help them divorce their mobility from their nationality and that should be one of our highest humanitarian objectives and that should be one of the efforts to which we devote our technological resources to enable this separation of mobility and nationality so that the people who need to go somewhere who are needed somewhere can get there with less bureaucracy and friction. I think that's a great
0: moment maybe to sort of like talk a little bit about the geopolitics of this. You talked about separating uh, mobility from, from from nationality. But we, of course, we see nationalism at play pretty much, you know, in different forms, but pretty much everywhere across the world from the UK, the US, Russia, Hungary, you know, China, India. Um, do you think that Politicians that are going to play the nationalist card moving forward are going to find themselves increasingly out of touch with the times or will migration increasingly create the conditions for leaders like, you know, Orban or Erdogan or Bolsonaro, uh, Modi?
1: How do you think about that? Exactly. And I'm so glad you mentioned those examples because it proves that the question you're asking is not at all hypothetical. We actually have a good 10 or 10, 15 years track record in you know, truly you know, immediate recent memory of populist nationalist leaders um, you know, who, are, who play that card of being xenophobic and uh, anti-immigrant and watching and seeing how long they last. And the answer is not very long. And watching how well they govern, which is not very well. In looking to see whether or not their people subscribe to their values, which is, frankly, not much at all. And if you look at the same countries that we identify today as being those strongman nationalist regimes, and we often tar their people with the same brush, what we actually find, if you simply look at the literal movement of people, is that these are the countries that are the biggest sources of immigration. In other words, there's a huge gap between Erdogan and his people, because the people want to leave. There's a huge gap between Putin and his people. The people want to leave. There's a huge gap between Modi and Bolsonaro and the Indian and Brazilian people, because guess what, they want to leave. So there's nothing more ironic you know, and and perverse than this r- discourse that has actually really um, dominated Western conversation over the past decade—that we live in this age of the revenge of nationalism. And because that, you know, that is literally not true. It is literally a lie. It is literally a mischaracterization of the feelings of the actual people. And again, that's why you should always use, you know, actual human beings and their actual physical movements and especially young people before you ascribe values to a particular society. Because young people today, Greg, we have survey after survey. This is the most scrutinized and psychoanalyzed generation that's ever walked the earth because we look at their Facebook and Instagram accounts and we know what they think. And BBC and others have been surveying them and poking and prodding their brains for the last 10, 15 years. And Greg, their values are not nationalism and ethnic identity. Their values are mobility, connectivity, sustainability. So much so that sociologists talk about how um, the, the horizontal identity of the young generation is stronger than the national identity vertically between generations in the same country. That is the inversion that has taken place in global psychology. So knowing all of that, how can we possibly look at a few tin pot dictators and say that the age of nationalism is, is upon us. You know, Trump is gone. You know, it's easier to migrate to the UK right now than it was before Brexit. So countries actually do learn and self correct uh, much faster than, than, this, than this, some kind of a teleological notion of a return of nationalism.
0: And, and I guess there's a related question around governance, right? So we've built sovereign states around the idea that People live at fixed addresses. Maybe they work for specific employers. Um, the you know they or their employers pay taxes to the government, which obviously redistributes them throughout society. But we saw with remote work and remote schooling that we can function in a very in a different way. And if they we can you know function you know in proximity to a city, presumably we could do it on another continent. So. I'm really interested to get your thoughts on the the challenge for states moving forward around established models of taxation and redistribution. How should we be thinking about this? How can we create a a model uh, that's sort of future-proof in the way that you're
1: describing uh, this mass mobility of the future? It's a great question. And one word I would add into the mix is, of course, investment. Because what a lot of countries are doing today is focusing not on taxation and redistribution, but rather investment investment. And, uh, and sort of the distribution of benefits from that investment. And I think this is a critical area of innovation. And I've looked at a lot of countries that have been issuing these nomad visas and selling passports and so forth. And really, again, it goes back to this war for young talent, this uh, recruitment of new residents who are spenders in your economy, um, not necessarily taxpayers immediately, not necessarily citizens as such, but have entered your migration system and are climbing the ladder because they like your country as a place to be and their consumption and spending in your society is as valuable as the taxes that they may pay. Now, you could obviously raise VAT taxes if you're gonna have an increasingly migratory population so that you capture those patterns, but generally speaking, if you're already a country with high taxes and actually deliver the benefits uh, in a way that has earned the trust of your people, um, like Northern European countries, then that's fine. But for a country with a poor track record of governance to suddenly be raising taxes and presume that people are going to pay them on the assumption that they're going to get what they paid for, that's not likely. Which is why instead of seeing a sort of race to the top, you see you know, what you might describe from a tax perspective as a race to the bottom, but what it really is, is a, is a Again, the war for talent. How will you recruit uh, the innovators and the entrepreneurs to come to your country? And the answer is not raising taxes. The answer is lowering them, but offering other benefits in return. One of the novel things that I toy with in the book is the idea of... um, You know, when countries sell real estate to foreigners, they could actually tax that transaction or take some portion of that investment and redistribute that to the local population. And in doing so, of course, locals suddenly would be very pro-immigration because they're getting an automatic dividend from every property investor who comes into the country. And that's something that would be extremely simple to implement and would probably turn a lot of politics around in the right direction very, very quickly.
0: Do you think, though, it's possible in a, you know, in, in a Western country, though, to, for, for a politician to argue, you know, have a platform of, you know, pro-migration? I mean, is it possible to make that argument politically that, you know, if we don't welcome migrants, we will find ourselves economically disadvantaged?
1: Absolutely. Look at Canada, look at Germany. Now, with Canada, it's a proactive and voluntary process of strategically aligning a massive expansion of immigration with their economic diversification plans, with a very strong national consensus behind it, as you can see by the you know, re-election of Justin Trudeau and the lack of a Trump-like figure in Canada. In some years, Canada lets in almost as many people as the United States, even though it has one-tenth the population. So pound for pound, there's no comparison to what Canada is doing. However, because it's a role model, other countries are realizing that they ought to learn from that experience, because either you want up like what Canada is, you're becoming a real immigration superpower and a talent and knowledge economy. Um, You could either choose that path or you could choose the path of Greece, right? You know, you pick. Right, and if you're the leader of a country, you're looking around at role models and policies to follow. You're saying, "Hmm, Canada is doing something right. Maybe I need to articulate more what the benefits of migration are." And again, if you look at Germany, a place that has involuntarily been thrust into the situation of having to absorb hundreds of thousands of uh, of you know millions actually of new migrants uh, in recent years, they've actually come out stronger for it. If you look at their economy, the expansion of the labor force, you know, increased output, and so on. And again, which parties won the election that just took? Place? Place in Germany. It was not the right wing AFD party at all. So this is possible. And I would like to see more leaders from more countries stand up and articulate that the exact truth that we is historically, empirically and economically documented that migrants are good for your economy. So we have to talk about climate warming or climate change.
0: Um, you mentioned it earlier. Um, you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the sort of like future geography of the world in the coming decades, parts of the world that maybe will be less populated than they are now, and others that will uh, shift to having more people. Can you just kind of map that out uh, for the listeners to give us a sense of way how you think this is going? People are going to be distributed in the world in the in the sort of like the next twenty thirty years. How what's the world going to look like?
1: Well, there's no question that the traditional patterns of migration, which is to say, intra-regional primarily, which is, you know, Asians within Asia, Africans within Ash, uh, Africa, Europeans within Europe, that's going to change as a result of climate change, as a result of more people moving inter-regionally from south to north. And I give a few examples of these new vectors um, in the book. Look at South Asians. If you look at climate models, the broader South Asian region, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, is absolutely scorching, right? It's uh, Well, it's either desertifying and having you know drought um, and falling water tables, or it's going to be flooded like Bangladesh. So you're going to see South Asia be the largest. Geography of origin of migrants, climate or otherwise, in the years ahead. In fact, I I point out in the book that the Indian diaspora is set to become far larger than the Chinese diaspora, and right now the Chinese diaspora is twice as large as the Indian diaspora. So there's going to be really significant demographic changes. And then I point to the growing South Asian populations in places like Europe. And this is really interesting because there are 25 million Asian Americans which is to say you know you know particularly south Asians east Asians who've had to cross an entire ocean to reach you know the united states or canada whereas there are only 4 million of what I call Asian Europeans, and that's just the European Union, so I'm leaving out Britain, which obviously has a history of post-colonial migrations from Asia, so is a special case. But if you can imagine, if you think about today the fact that Europe and Asia are each other's largest trading partners, that you have these infrastructure projects and free trade agreements coming into effect between Europe and Asia, that they share this one mega continental landmass, and that Europe has such severe labor shortages, how can you not predict or foresee that there will be millions and millions more Asians simply moving overland or by plane to Europe? And you can already track this over the last, um, you know, 20, 30 years, because that 4 million, that modest figure today was a lot, lot less About 25, 30 years ago, actually, when I was a kid in high school in Germany, um, you know, I was probably the only person of my complexion in a pretty, you know, wide radius um, as an Indian American. But today, if you go to Frankfurt, Berlin, Hamburg, there's just so many Indians and Chinese and Vietnamese and Bangladeshis and so forth. Um, So, you know, it's a gradual process, but I'm quite confident in the view that the number of Asian Europeans will literally increase tenfold or more. More, um, in the decades ahead. Yeah, and, and, and clearly we're going to have to think about I- increasingly
0: how we make parts of the world habit- habitable that are, you know, you're, you're speaking to us from, from Singapore today. What's it going to take for people to continue to live in Singapore as we see temperatures begin to rise? Is there going to be a, a clearly there's going to be an enormous uh, ambition for most cities like. Singapore or Dubai that are global hubs to
1: continue to have the the, the status that they currently have. Absolutely, and this is the big question of climate adaptation, which is in many ways the neglected stepchild. Uh, you know, in in climate uh, discourse, you know, with COP twenty six and other uh, summits and processes, we focus so much on climate mitigation, which we rightly, of course, should. We should be giving even more attention and resources. You know, to Manhattan projects for climate mitigation, so decarbonizing industries and you know in, in investing more in renewable power, even geoengineering. projects. Projects, All of that fits within mitigation, um, and that gets about 95% of all investment that relates to climate, um, you know, sort of climate change issues. Only 5% goes to adaptation, and adaptation is everything from seawalls and coastal barriers to new infrastructure and housing and better insulation and heating, and, of course, population resettlement, because let me just restate the obvious you know, point that the single best and surest and safest and immediate way, the most tried and true successful way to help a person survive climate change is to help them move, right? Help them move. And it probably costs next to nothing. So if we're willing to do that, that is the right way to deal with the issue. But of course we're not willing to do that to a large extent. And so adaptation measures, and this is why I think you, know, you bring up the examples of Singapore and, and Dubai, and I have a specific chapter just on those two cities because at the equatorial uh, you know, latitudes, um, these are the two largest rich cities that you have. And so what they do are in a way a harbinger of what may happen in other uh, locales. And so they are doing a lot with, you know, seawalls and coastal protection, and you know, floodplains and raising roads and these kinds of things. But again, because they can afford to do it. Um, Other places may not be able to. Obviously, people in the Bay of Bengal can't. Uh, So, you know, they will have to move inland and upland. One of the things I point out is that right now when we talk about the relationship between Myanmar and Bangladesh, we look at the Rohingya population, ethnic Bengalis who have been uh, expelled and and, uh, driven out of Myanmar into Bangladesh. But of course, the uplands of the the, the Mekong, uh, you know, so the upper Mekong region of Myanmar, is one of, the, so one of the zones that I identify in the book as a climate oasis, one of the places that's becoming more livable as climate change accelerates. So you can well imagine that Bangladeshis as a whole will not only move further north towards their upper border with India, but further northeast into Myanmar. And so you have lots of these new dynamics. You know, we talked about South Asians earlier. I see more and more South Asians in Kazakhstan, in Russia. I see them all over Central Asia. So much so that I refer it refer to it as um, the reverse Mughal Empire. You know, five hundred years ago, the Mughal Empire sort of you know expanded from north to south, um, and now what you see happening is this reverse colonization of South Asians moving north to the much more livable uh, latitudes of uh, Central Asia of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, so we're going to see a lot of novel kinds of uh, you know geographic uh, you know migration vectors in in the years ahead. And again, you know, um, Greg, this is not just a few million people we're talking about, right? We this is going to be tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. Yeah,
0: and, and I, that's what I wanted to kind of get get into. I mean, you t- you talked about the end you know, of the Bay of Bengal and what happens to Dhaka? What happens to Calcutta, like what, what's the future for, for those kinds of cities that maybe don't have the resources of Dubai or
1: Singapore? Well, you know, already places like Jakarta and Indonesia is planning on relocating itself effectively to the island of Borneo. And it probably is not actually going to happen. They've already suspended the project for financial reasons and because of COVID. It's better, of course, to stay on the island of Java, which, you know, a pop quiz for everyone is the world's most populous island. So the notion of moving the capital of a country away from its most populous island never really made a lot of sense anyway. But obviously just move upland and, you know, build a seawall and do these kinds of things. And that's ultimately what uh, Indonesia will do. But Indonesia is, you know, actually uh, is a country that's prospering. You know, it's really, you know, growing its economy. There are places like Bangladesh are too, but they don't necessarily have that capital base and, you know, to be able to invest in that resilience. And, and, and quite frankly, uh, Bangladesh is a lot more at risk, you know, geographically than uh, than, than parts of uh, Indonesia. So the answer really varies according to the state capacity, the technological capacity or the specific kind of climate risk that a place faces if you have a zero day water event right where the taps run dry and as you know this has happened in just the last few years in uh, in brazil and sao paulo in cape town south africa in dakar senegal in chennai india you know the challenge there is not immediately sea level rise it's actually um that it's too little water not too much water um you know, and by the way, if it's not an obvious point, too much water is a better problem to have than too little water. You know, too much water you can move out of the way and desalinate it, uh, you know, and and drink it and still live. Too little water is not a survivable condition, and so those are the people that are literally the most vulnerable of all, uh, places where there's drought and never-ending drought and where they can't grow anything at all. And you know, this raises all sorts of legal issues as well, uh, Greg, because today under international law, humanitarian law, when a country accepts political refugees like Syrians, it can, after a certain period of time, send them back. It right now as we speak, uh, you know, Syria has been deemed by European countries to be stable enough-ish that you can put Syrians on planes from Stockholm and send them back to Damascus. Now that's unconscionable, you know, in those Syrians' eyes and quite frankly in mine as well. But when it comes to, a, you know, ma- try to map that onto a climate situation, can you really, in good conscience and under international law, put people on a plane and send them back to a country where there's literally no water? You can't. So this is a novel situation that we're heading into and it's not some kind of theoret- theoretical abstraction. Just
0: one final question,
1: Parag. Thank you
0: so much for your time today. I just want you just to give us a sense of looking forward, and you, you choose the to, you know the, the length of time. But look forward for us, you know, in a time frame that you think is realistic, and give us a sense of, of what that looks like. What
1: will the world be like? Well, I'm, you know, I, what I do in the book is sketch four scenarios. You know, and three of them are quite negative. There's the regional fortresses scenario, the new Middle Ages scenario, and barbarians at the gate. None of those sound particularly rosy. The fourth scenario is what I call Northern Lights, and that's where we. Proactively bring about a, a gradual recirculation of the human population. We become more mobile, maybe even more nomadic, but more sustainable at the same time to avoid the kind of tragedy of the commons effects. You know, I would also not want to see 4 billion people relocated from south to north based upon the practices of urbanization that we have been you know, sort of conducting for the past 100 years, because then we would destroy what remaining precious habitats we have in the world. So a sustainable 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 mobility, sustainable redistribution of of those most vulnerable populations would be a part of the, the solution. Fundamentally, it boils down to sort of two twin principles. One is moving people to resources. And the other is moving technologies to people. You know, on the former, it's about, again, looking, look at that very concrete IPCC map of the change in the suitability of geographies. The world has vast green livable zones, places that are becoming more habitable for humans as time goes on. Right, our space, our terrain on this Earth is plentiful. It's in fact precisely 150 million square kilometers, and much of that is very livable for people. And we only have eight and a half, maybe nine, maximum billion people. We all fit very, very comfortably on this planet, right, Greg? Um, So we can do it in terms of moving people to resources. Whether we can do it politically or culturally is. You know, a a parallel question that obviously needs to be thought through and worked on very diligently and should be our civilizational focus. And then for those people who are going to remain where they are, it's about moving technologies to people. What can we do in terms of those coastal sea barriers and drought-resistant seeds and hydroponic agriculture and water desalination and solar and wind power all of these kinds of things right what can we do to make life livable for those who can't or don't want to or not allowed to leave where they are and if we do do those two things if we follow those two principles we might make you know the most or begin to improve our handling of the of the situation, of the crisis, and in a way to evolve. And to me, this is an evolutionary story. We're evolving our governance, um, you know, beyond the strict sovereignty of the 200 nation states that we have today, which we always will have, and maybe even have more. But that isn't to say that states can't cooperate in the interest of stewardship, in the interest of better management of the resources at our disposal, and to do so in a way that's to the benefit of those, own, of those economies. Again, look at the lessons from Canada and even from parts of Russia, where the more people they let in into construction and agriculture, the more prosperous those provinces become. So I would not discount that learning process. We, we should not hold all things equal in this, in this evolution, right? Psychology changes, material conditions change, demographics change. And, and, and in that complex swirl of these new circumstances, a new and novel future emerges. And I do hold out hope, because I see the roadmap very clearly ahead of us, that it can be you know, a, a positive future. Well,
0: that's a great note to end on. Parrot. thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the book is a fascinating look at some of the trends that are going to be shaping the world. Highly recommended to uh, all of our uh, wide audience. Thank you so much for joining us to, uh, today and uh, look forward to uh,
1: seeing your work in uh, further down the line. Thank you so much, Greg. It was such a pleasure. Thank you.